the RTE Rugby Podcast, sponsored by Canterbury. See the new Irish men and women's rugby jerseys at canterbury.com. And you're very welcome along to this week's RTE Rugby Podcast. Hugh Cowell's away this week, so Neil Tracy here filling in from this afternoon. Bernard Jackman and Joan Lennon are with us as always. And also a big RTE Rugby Podcast welcome to Michael Bradley, former Zebra Parma head coach, who's uh, stopped by this morning to join us and give us a bit of an insight into the Italians. Michael, thanks a million for joining us. No problem, Neil. Pleasure. Um, we obviously haven't had a chance to, to speak to you since you finished up as, as head coach there in Italy. Um, look, I'm sure it was a very difficult, difficult thing to find out that, that you were being let go by them. Like, what was that like? Were you disappointed? Were you surprised? Shocked? Um, yeah, it's an interesting story, Neil, because um, for two years prior to that, obviously with COVID, we get tested every week, sometimes two or three times a week. So I had two years of of uh, zero positives and the more I knew the meeting was coming up um, because um, you can see these things happening as a coach Bernard you understand what I'm talking about absolutely yeah well <laughs> I would just I just say coaches are never let go it's a mutual decision Neil in fairness <laughs> yes yes yes, yes. <laughs> um, so the morning that was a Tuesday morning and uh, I was scheduled meeting was at nine o'clock with the, the CEO and the uh, president and um, half past six in the morning I do a home test positive and i'm going oh, no 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 please no no so anyway and i go and i did a second test uh in the in the um at the stadium and the medical guy said look you're positive you have to go home so i did a third test uh just to be sure to be sure and in in, in italy you need to have a registered t- test which is the same here in ireland so i went to the the chemist down the road and and then they said the guy, the, the guy who owns the chemist is um, a supporter of Zebra. And he said, uh, Michael, you've got COVID. You have to uh, isolate now for the next uh, 7, 10, 15 or 21 days, depending on. So I met uh, the CEO and uh, the president at nine o'clock in the car park across the way from the stadium with two car lengths between us. And they were from a distance, they were telling me, Zebra is going in a different direction and you won't be involved. You can go home and, and do some gardening at home. So uh, unfortunately, I actually had to stay, would you believe it, in my apartment for 15 days um, to, to get, a, to get a, a negative test. And I, I did five tests and the fifth one. Then the next day I got home. So when you say, what was it like? As Bernard says there, you, you know, you get a feeling you know where the organization is going anyway. And there was a lot, a lot of changes in Zebra between uh, March this year, uh, March, March last year, sorry, and, uh, and my departure, which was what, nine months later. Uh, there was a change in president and the president in Italy is all powerful. And uh, he put his own men into, into Zebra. And basically the people I worked with for the last four years uh, were all gone. And uh, I suspect I was next on the list, and that's what happened. So for a little while, like you kind of you suspected you were you were trying to to wait against the tide a little bit, were you? How do you mean, Neil? Sorry. As in, you know, you you could feel this was kind of coming from a way off, and you know, you were you were, the challenge was getting further and further uphill. Uh, well, I suppose if I could put it to you this way, it makes sense to most people who don't understand Italian rugby. When a change of president happens, it's like America. You have Democrats and you have the Republicans and once the Republicans are in the Democrats days are numbered you know so geez I I never put you down as a Democrat I have to say I'd be more of a Democrat than a Republican (laughs) 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 but on that you see I've seen more of this fella I've seen more of this fella in the last three weeks than I have in the last 15 years but my wife is a a coffee with his wife every Saturday morning so I do everything that was going on in Zebra for about a for the last 10 years but um, exactly I know you 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 could see from the outside Michael in fairness uh, it must be hugely frustrating being involved in in the Italian setup I mean it's it's incredibly difficult. We saw Scotland try to do it for years, working off the base of two provincial teams. And then, like, correct me if I'm wrong, we saw kind of a rise in, in Benetton over the last two seasons. But it was almost as if Benetton were, were prioritised over Zebra. And, uh, you know, so all the resources and all the best players were kind of 
earmarked towards that way, which which makes I mean you're 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 fighting an uphill battle from from day one. So from that point of view, it was incredibly difficult. Yeah, well, the, I mean the internal politics uh, between Zebra and um, Treviso is is another is another area which we don't need to go into. But I mean you talk you talk and people's perception actually is that is that Treviso uh, had a very you know good last couple of years, but they they lost every game in in the the URC last year. You know, so I mean, Zebra beat them twice. Um, so uh, it's not, you know, this year they've, they've, I think, three or four games they've won, but they've won two in the last kick of the game type of thing. But but Treviso are in a better um, structural position than than uh, than uh, than Zebra, principally because they have independence from fear. Uh, Zebra has no independence from fear. And look, I mean, I suppose. I don't want to spend uh, a lot of time talking about us and them, Treviso and, and Zebra. Like, I think the question, Neil, that you, one of your questions was, you know, where do Italy go from here? I think, Donald, you would know and Bert, you would know as well from if you have competitive teams in the, in the, in the Champions Cup, then you're talking that's close enough to international uh, competition and the players that play in those matches should easily, not easily, but should be able to make the step up to international rugby and the pressures that are involved in that. So the measure of where Italy are is relative, in my opinion, to where they are in the Champions Cup uh, pecking order, how many matches they play, what experience the players get at that level to enable them to play at uh, international level. And with the South Africans coming in next year, it's a, it's a further difficult task, shall we say, for Italian rugby. Just on that, Michael, I, I, I remember um, at a coaching conference in Bilbao where you spoke and you spoke about if you want to be a professional coach, you need to be willing to, to travel. And you've certainly lived by that. And, and at the end of that conference, Eddie Jones wrapped it up talking for three hours about tactical periodization and and uh, analysis and game plans. And at the end, a French coach asked him, Eddie, what's the one piece of advice you'd give to a young coach who wants to have a career? And he said, get, get good players, you know? So despite all that, uh, it goes down to that. I mean, you you obviously know what it's like on the ground in, in, in Italy. Um, I mean, obviously there's a lot of talk about the under twenties being strong. How quickly do you think that the two franchises can get good enough players to get to that level in the champions cup that you're talking about? I mean, that's the key. If they, if they can get towards that in the next three, five years, then they have a chance international level. But uh, do you do you see those fellas coming through? Um, is there other talent out there? Like, what's what's the what's the next step for Italian rugby? Well, for me, if they want to be competitive international level, uh, Bert, that's it. I mean, you have to make the franchises competitive. Currently, uh, that's not happening. It's not, the awareness isn't there. Uh, so, you know, I think... There probably is a process before this. The URC and Six Nations, uh, who, who um, I suppose work with Italian rugby, um, need to look at the agreement they have, the money they're giving them, and um, they need to ask questions. Because I, I mean, three years ago, Connor, when Connor was there, uh, I mean, Connor did, a, in my opinion, an excellent job. He stabilized things, went forward a little bit. In fairness. Uh, Italy should have beaten France in a match that uh, um, one of the lads was going over and he was looking at the camera and dropped the ball, which would have been the winning score um, in that match. So it wouldn't be 34 games in a row, etc. But the um, I, I think like the Italians won't change. They will not change unless the questions are asked and the story. So I mean, you and me and Neil and Donald can talk about this and the listeners can listen. Um, but it's not going to happen. Um, Italy are good. At, it, it's in their culture. They're good in a crisis situation. If it becomes a crisis when uh, South Africa are coming in, then you know they, they'll probably try and move a few things. But it's it's too late then. Um, I, I think the questions have to be asked, and the, and uh, the Italian rugby union are not going to ask themselves the questions. So they have to be asked from outside. And uh, as I said, Connor, Connor had. Um, a list of priorities uh, agreed with um, Pro 14 at the time and, and Six Nations. And, and uh, I don't know where they went to, really. They just disappeared. You mentioned, Michael, the, the control that FAR would have over Zebra that they wouldn't over, over Benetton. Like, what, what does that extend to? Is, that, is it financial stuff? Does it extend to anything in terms of 
we would like you to play this style of rugby. We would like you to prioritise, you know, bringing through players, back three players, for example. Like, how much control would they have? Um, you know, where, where it manifests itself really is in, in investment in facilities, selection of coaches, um, selection of players coming through, getting, uh, getting the good young players or the best young players coming through. Uh, there's all deals done everywhere, uh, Neil, you know. Um, so it, it, it manifests itself everywhere. The total control on the budget. Um, and it, it does not manifest itself in style of play because uh, when I went in, um, but I was working with different people now. Uh, when I went in, you know, we agreed the style of play. And I said, look, Italy don't have dominant forward ball carriers. So we need to expand how we play the game and we need to play and develop the skill that enables us to, to play that. And, and that's what we that's what we've tried to do for four years, uh, four and a half years now, I suppose. But teams, you know, they 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 cop they cop onto it and, and they set up their defenses accordingly, etc. But they so to answer your question, it wouldn't they wouldn't interfere with the technical work of a coach or a coaching staff, but they would put in the coaches, you know, mm -hmm. and some of the coaches are excellent and some of the coaches coaches need more development and then become very good. So it's it's at it hasn't been an issue in terms of the quality of coaching as far as I'm concerned. Um, but where it's key is, um, is players. Like you have, um, you have four or five lads, in my opinion, who should have gone to Zebra, but for different reasons, they ended up in Treviso. And that makes a big difference in the balance of power within the clubs. And there isn't, as I said, an awareness that, the only way Italy will be competitive at uh, international level is if the franchise are competitive. And if Treviso benchmark off, off Zebra and Zebra are below Treviso, then there's no real motivation for Treviso because they have the financial capabilities to kick on. So if it was the other way around, if Zebra were dominating Treviso and, and, and winning more matches, et cetera, et cetera, then Treviso would... Would would not uh, accept that, and they would kick on in uh, and trying to try and improve. So I think that's the solution. Where, and as I said, it's an awareness thing. And and then with the coaching, then as well, uh, like I know you're saying, the actual union themselves wouldn't necessarily be telling you what way you need to be to be playing rugby. But when you were there, would you have had conversations with the national coach? Would there have been any kind of like joined up thinking of? Well, the yeah, national, yeah. but whether it's Conor O'Shea or whether it's Franco Smith, yeah, yeah, yeah. Saying, Franco, I, I, yeah. I kind of want to start playing like this. Maybe we can all start trying to do these these kind of things. No, playing like this doesn't come into it. Um, if I'd like this particular player to play this particular weekend, it's not a problem. I mean, Monster, Leinster, Ulster do it, Connacht do it. So you'd have that sort of a level of conversation, absolutely, but not not on style of play, absolutely not. No, Donald. Yeah, having... <clears throat> yeah, no, the thing I take away from that is, is look, it must be incredibly frustrating to work there. But the bottom line is, uh, as, you know, when you look, it, the Italians have been under pressure in the Six Nations for a long time. This this 34-game losing streak is a monkey that they're going to have to shift at some stage. Obviously, the conversation is shifting with regards, we know, South Africa, where their ambitions lie. Uh, I mean, you know, entering the URC is only a means to an end. I mean, the next stage in that process is their teams qualifying for the Heineken Cup, and that's going to happen in the next two seasons. So, therefore, the logical next step is a Six Nations. Uh, for all kinds of reasons, I think that would have huge implications for rugby, certainly in the Southern Hemisphere. Like, if you're left with Australia and New Zealand, both of them are kind of outliers. They struggle financially. South Africa brings 67% of the revenues generated in the rugby championship or generated out of South Africa. So you take that money out of it and there's major problems. Uh, New Zealand have managed to keep their best players in the country for a long time by the lure of the New Zealand jersey. But, uh, you know, if, if, if they're not playing competitively, that, that's going to be an issue down the road. But I think it's more serious if the Italian Union... I mean, Zebra... And Treviso, to be fair, are kind of handcuffed by the investment that their Italian federation is willing to put into them. But if they're not recognizing the issues and if they're not concentrating and if their sole function isn't bringing up their two franchises to the level where they can compete in a Champions Cup, as, as Michael has said, 
Well, then, rugby, rugby, the world rugby have to talk to them. They have to do something to help themselves. The other nations, you know, everybody wants to see Italian rugby stay in the Six Nations for a whole uh, myriad of reasons. Um, but they have to be seen to help themselves as well. I mean, um, uh, I, I, uh, and the support is there. Nothing is going to happen till 2026 at the earliest. But if they're not seen to be helping themselves in that period of time, then you have to you have to ask the question: Do they deserve to be in the top tier of international rugby? Michael, in terms of the in terms of the finances, then as well, like Donald mentioned, you know, we'll say like in New Zealand, what's keeping them there? It's, it's not necessarily money; it's the lure of the jersey. Same in Ireland. Like if we're talking what money you would have had to spend in in Zebra, what's, uh, what they have to spend in in Benetton as well, if you compare it to, to the Irish provinces, like how big of a gulf was that between the resources available to coaches? The tax, the tax rebate in Ireland as well is a good lure as well, just make that point uh, as well. In other words, it's supported by the government, you know, and rugby's a, it's a, rugby's a big game in Ireland, you know. I was, before I left, the boys were talking about uh, uh, rugby in, uh, in Italy being about the 15th game. You know, so you have um, you have um, potential for sponsors there. Soccer is obviously the biggest game, but the, even the, the soccer sponsorship deals, majority, the vast majority of the money comes from TV, not necessarily from from sponsors. And to answer your question on the on the budgets, I mean, like if if Zebra for everything, everything all totaled. Uh, five million, five and a half million is maximum, and that's everything. So that's not just on the pitch; it's off the pitch and around the pitch. And Treviso might have another two million on top of that. But I mean, like you look at Munster a couple of years ago; they brought in the two boys from South Africa. You know, it's probably cost them a million a year. So it's and 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 Treviso and Zebra play Munster. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I mean, that's what Donald's talking about there. And you know, I mean, what. I, I'm not sure, but Munster, Munster are getting to the last 16, you know, they're getting to the last eight and then they're hitting a block. And that's with that sort of investment. Um, but at least they're getting in, like you have the four Irish provinces in the um, Champions Cup uh, positions again this year and, and, and qualified from last year. So that's a great statement from an Irish rugby point of view, you know. Wales is the complete opposite. You don't know where they're going, but... Um, so yeah, so there, that's the money, Neil. It, I mean, the money is not so, so, so that's where Zebra and Treviso are. So, to, on Donald's point, Bernard agrees at this point as well. For Italy to be competitive at international level, you have to be playing in the last eight, last four of the uh, Champions Cup. So, what's the investment that would get you up there? It's not, and that's a, that's a serious, uh, it's a serious conversation. You know, when you look at the Montpellier's of this world with 30-odd million and Claremont with 30-odd million and, and they're struggling, you know, so it's not an easy answer. Well, Brads, what, what's the financial state of the of, of the uh, Federation like? Have they the money to... Because if you think about it, if you're only spending that uh, um, and you don't have the history... So Munster spending... Munster Leinster spending 10 million odd, right, uh, on, on the playing squad. That's on the basis of... 20 years of investment you know what I mean so for Munster or for for Zebra or Benetton to get to top eight in the Champions Cup you probably need to add nearly double it uh, for three or four years to catch up um, have the have the Federation that kind of money um, and you know it, will it be as Donald said the gun to their head that if you don't improve you're not going to have guaranteed rights will that be the uh, the pressure point they need to spend it I mean I don't know the answer to that yeah. Uh, Bernard, in terms of the the detail, the, I mean, you, the, there's a dividend from the Six Nations. There's a dividend from the URC. They have, they have, I don't know, is the figure somewhere about forty million going into the into the coppers every every year. So it's what they do with that, you know. Now it obviously costs money to run um, underage and ladies game, and they're quite successful at the ladies game. Um, so you know, I mean, to run an or a professional, well, to run an organization, a rugby uh, franchise is, in a country is expensive, you know. So I, I don't know, but the thing about it is that, you know, you can you can uh, you can't say that there isn't money in Italy. I mean, there's a lot of money in that country, and so you you have to just in get people enthusiastic uh, about the uh, the project 
uh, sell it and and go and execute it you know that and that potential is there all the time so you have to have the ambition uh to be able to follow that path <coughs> that, that's a question had, at the moment yeah brad was there was there an opportunity do you remember a couple of years ago when you had the juvenile soccer scandals and the briberies and all that type of thing and uh, mm -hmm. the, the general the italian sporting public seemed to be getting fed up with this type of thing and there for a period there it looked as if there was an opportunity for rugby maybe to to step in and, and capture sort of the neutral sports fan i remember uh the, uh, Italy played New Zealand in the San Siro, I think. There was 70,000 yeah. people at the match. There was a yeah. massive... Like, we all know the, the home of Italian rugby is in the north, yet the internationals are still played in Rome. Um, I'm just wondering, was there sort of opportunities missed around that time? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think the answer to that would be yes. I mean, from a momentum point of view, Donald, yes. I mean, that match was a great event. I mean, even in Zebra, there's a big poster of that match up on the wall because it's a good reference point for, for everybody to say, you know, that, that's where we can go with the organisation. But the, you, ha you have to have ambition and, and uh, you have to, it has to be bigger than the internal workings of, of the country, which is where it's stuck, you know, it's stuck there. And, and I, I actually don't blame the Italians at all because there's 23, 23 years in, in the in the Six Nations and, and uh, Six Nations and now you, uh, URC and CVC when they, when, when they have their spoke in the, in the table, they, they have to ask questions, you know, and then let's see where they go, you know, because if you don't ask the questions, it's just going to stay the same. And in two, in what is it, in uh, three weekends, four weekends time in the Six Nations is over. That's the end of it then. It's the end of it yeah. for, for uh, 40, 44 weeks. The pressure point is yeah. 44 weeks away. It doesn't matter. You, we go on to yeah. the next thing, you know? Yeah, but I, I, I think though with this, with this, like South Africa are now looming in the background, whether it's the right thing or the wrong thing, it's, it is creating a debate. And Italy aren't helping themselves. If they go through another Six Nations and you have another year without winning a match, which is very likely, let's be honest about it, um, well, the debate is only going to continue. So in my opinion, the Italian Federation, they must be seen to address this. There must be some sort of a forum or a crisis. How are we going to uh, bring our franchises on to the next level? And if they're not seen to be making that effort, well, then... Maybe it's the other people will answer the questions for them. And if they end up losing out in six or seven years' time, then they'll have nobody to blame but themselves. Yeah, but then, so the reality of this conversation is the questions have to be asked, but not by the Italians, you know, as yeah. far as I'm concerned, anyway. Brad, if I can ask you one more question. So, obviously, you've got experience of Irish rugby, uh, Georgian rugby, Romanian rugby. I used to meet you in the top 14 when you were overwatching Georgian players play, so you understand the, the yeah. ramifications of French underage. The, the big talking point or the big uh, objection people make about the future of Italian rugby is this under-20s crop and uh, the last couple of years underage, right? And you... You coached Irish in the twenties, uh, yeah. yeah. So you know, you know how difficult or how easy it is to transfer from being a very good under twenty player to being a you know a professional player to being a, an international player. You know, in your in your um, experience and understanding of the underage system in Italy, how likely do you think that those under twenties now are maybe the ones that were there last year, but that current underage group can come and make a difference? I mean. Um, are they a special group? Or are they just a very good team? Um, and, and also in terms of progression, how many, you know, are they likely to come true or is there a big fall off, you know, of in Italian rugby of those talented youngsters who don't make it true? Well, I think the key uh, to that point, first of all, they are talented. They are very talented. They're as talented as the Irish. They're as talented as the Welsh. May, yeah. You know, they beat England last, last time out, that sort of stuff, you know. But what happens after the under 20 is what we've been talking about for the last 15 minutes you yeah. need to continuously learn at a very high level and if when they come into the franchises or when they stay with club rugby which is a completely different level altogether but if even if they come straight into the franchises they come into zebra and they come into treviso if zebra and treviso are operating at the level they're operating relative to the competition in the Six Nations, then they learn, but they don't learn at the required level for them to be competitive at Six Nations. That's basically the conundrum as it is. Um, so the talent is there. 
um, you know, like everybody knows about Garbizi, but there's a, the lad who scored there, um, Minoncello on the wing. He's actually a very good centre. He's a fabulous uh, 13. He's really very, very good. Uh, Marin is a, a number 10 stroke, a number 15. He's a very, very talented player. These are from last year. Uh, Garbizi's year, there was about five players came through who, were, who are, uh, you know, they have the potential to be very good international players. But if they slot into Zebra and if they slot into Treviso and we operate they operate at that level, um, then it, they're not going to develop. Garbizi goes to Montpellier, which actually is good for Garbizi. Yeah. You know, uh, Riccioni goes to Saracens. He, unfortunately, he smashed his leg. He's a very, very good player, but he left Treviso, which is, in my opinion, the right thing to do. I mean, if you look at Scottish rugby with two franchises, Donald, you mentioned it at the top of the, the, the program, mm. they, they are leaving their top players go. Um, to France and to England, uh, to clubs that want them. So it, it clears the, 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 the way for the, the next generation to come through relatively quickly. And um, that system works for Scotland. I mean, Scotland are now are a serious rugby team. They have been for the last couple of years. I mean, Ireland, I don't know how Ireland have beat them four or five times in a row, but they could have lost every one of the games. You know, it's, for me, I was surprised Scotland lost to Wales. Um, and if they hadn't lost to Wales, I think they would have been serious contenders, even for a grand slam. Yeah, yeah but I think, I, I think that's a very good point. I mean, you saw Adam Hastings going off to Glasternow, for example. You know, when you only have the two franchises, that's only two number 10s that you can pick, or two scrum halves who are playing top-class rugby. So it's actually in their benefit for them to go away. The Finn Russell's going off to Paris. What it also does is it brings outside influences into your squad Otherwise, you have the same Treviso, Zebra fellas. Those fellas must know each other backwards. They must be fed up and looking at each other. I mean, bringing in guys who have experiences elsewhere and can raise the standards in terms of training and preparation and nutrition. And they, they just learn from these guys. Um, I mean, that has to be hugely beneficial. Um, and, you know, then I suppose the flip side of it, you have a fellow like Garbisi. He goes to Montpellier, where he's playing very well and getting a lot of game time. But uh, there's almost, because he's only one, maybe one or two who are coming in from the outside, there's, there's an incredible level of expectation on him. Now, there's enough pressure on a number 10 at the, the majority of the time. But when you're sort of seen as carrying the team and, look, he didn't have his best game against England last time out and it was almost his fault that uh, Italy were under pressure. So uh, it's a balance. But, um, you know, I agree. I think the Scotland model is working incredibly well for them and if you only have two franchises then uh, the more fellas you've played overseas the better because it can only lift the standard of everybody else yeah and scott i mean i was listening i watched the i was one of the um the november matches and flower scotland came on and the first five people who we saw on the scottish team were all south african so they're so they're we'll say their long-term strategic plan to get in players who aren't necessarily um, born and bred in, in Scotland, but are eligible to play for Scotland to um, make the side very competitive, to promote the game throughout the country. That's a good strategy. Is it a strategy that's been used enough in Italy? I know there, there have been plenty of, you know, New Zealand. Uh, no, that... not at the level of Scotland. Scotland are very active in that, Neil. I mean, they... In Italy, they are, they have, kind of, uh, are they stumbling they, across the good players? You know, are they are they signing someone who eventually just qualifies, or are they actively trying to? to no, no, they're actively out there looking. They, they, they. I was in Edinburgh in 2000, 2011, 12, 12, 13, and um, they, they would be strategic meetings about, um, okay, this position, uh, we have one, two, three, four. We might need a fifth. This position, we have two, we need another. Let's go and see what's available to us, you know? And then they would actively, they'd search, they'd search. I, I mean, hats off to them. They'd search, they'd search, they went through their own contacts, um, uh, all corners of the, of the world to, to see. And then they'd have a conversation and then they might make a strategic move on a player, you know? Um, to move on the conversation uh, a bit, lads, from, away from specifically just Italy, but just the future of the competition in general, because the, the conversation around Italy in the last 10 days or so has kind of thrown that up when we talk about South Africa as well. But like, if we're talking about 
bringing South Africa into an expanded competition. It looks like obviously that Italy wouldn't be get got rid of because they obviously have a vote and could just veto it in general. But if we're talking about bringing in South Africa, why not open up the door entirely? Bring in bring in Georgia. Look at look at Romania. Look at other countries as well, and completely start with a blank canvas and a blank sheet of paper and try build something. And I think you you have to be careful what you ask for. Number one. There's only so many weekends that players, players by and large, like they earn their living playing for uh, for their clubs, be it in Gallagher Premiership, Top 14, URC. Um, there's only so many games that you can play at international level. So, you know, expanding those competitions, you've got to look at what is the consequence of that. Um, as it is, I think, you know, teams or countries are playing an average of 12, 13 internationals a year. I think it's too much. Um, also, the, now one of the issues here is the international game is the engine that drives the finances, which pays for the provincial scene. I mean, I think 85% of the finances generated in Ireland is done so through the national team. And of course, those resources are used to, to pay uh, and keep the four provinces afloat. But um, the Six Nations for me, it, it is the best international rugby competition in the world outside of, of the World Cup. Uh, I think you need to be careful not to tinker it uh, with it too much. Um, you know, there was a time when you could play in New Zealand maybe once every three years or every four years. Now every November they're up here. Um, and and even the, the, the bite has gone out of it. Do you know what I mean? You can see Ireland play New Zealand twice every three years. You can go to New Zealand next summer, see them play three times in a row. Um, so the mystique has almost gone out of it. So I, I think you need to be careful to keep the balance right between the club game and the international game. Um, you know, when you talk about your Georgias and Italy should go promotion, relegation, I mean, that's, that's a difficult one. I mean, I saw Georgia, uh, I think they drew with Portugal in the, the second tier of European rugby last week. Um, so, and Italy, everybody's saying Georgia should come in, but Italy, every time they've been put to the pin of their collar. Italy have beaten Georgia. So Italy right now are a better team than Georgia. Um, so it's, it's, it's difficult to, um, you know, you can change things. But yeah, as I say, you look at, at, at rugby, it got out of hand in the Southern Hemisphere. Super rugby. I mean, they were, they were looking at you at 11 different time zones. You had, uh, I was in Australia 2018 and it was absolutely clear. The Australians had enough of this. There was, there was no way... Sorry about that. There was no way that um, they were going to continue travelling around the world. The Australian guys said, look, we want to play the top New Zealand teams home and away uh, because we're just fed up. With, uh, otherwise, they'll all leave and they'll go in. They'll, they'll live in, in England. So they've revamped Super Rugby now. And there's an opportunity there with two Pacific Island teams in there. So that's an interesting development. But, um, you know, expanding the Six Nations uh, for me, I think would be ridiculous. Uh, I just think there's there's enough games that's there. It's the history, the tradition, the color. Uh, they are talking about having this sort of world league, you know, through November and uh, the June tests anyway. So um, uh, to be like people have only so much money that they can afford to turn up at so many international games. So. I think you just need to be careful where you go at the next stage of this. Yeah, Donald, so I, so I, work, I worked, sorry, Neil, I worked in like two of the countries there. You talked about Romania and, and, uh, and Georgia. And like for me, guys, they, 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 they're miles and miles away from it. Like in Georgia, they're, they're, they're f much, much further down the road than, than uh, Romania. Romania, talking to the Romanians, because the Romanians played um, an emerging match in, in Parma a couple of months ago. And uh, when, when I worked there, they had, I think, eight super, what they call Super League teams, which would be the same as the AIL, okay? And from that, they, they, they fed their national side with the players that are abroad. Now, that's now gone down to five teams. So you have five AIL teams. So you're saying to me that this country, picking up a couple of players in France who are playing in Pro D2 or Pro D3, um, uh, it should play in Twickenham and 82,000 with people paying 100 pounds uh, sterling a, a ticket to get hit by 40 by 100 points. This is it's daft. 
So, but, play, but, but playing, pr- trying to play devil's advocate, like how do you, how do you make, how do you make the likes of Romania and Georgia and some of those other European teams better and bring them up to to Italy's level? Which, let's be honest as well, if if Italy are if Italy are having more games that they're winning by narrow margins, I'm not talking about you know putting thirty points on Georgia when they meet once every year or two, but if if a team like Italy can have more games that they're winning competitively. Surely that generates a lot more interest as well, and it makes everyone else a little bit better. So what I'm asking is like, how do we, how do you go about actually bringing those smaller teams up to a greater level? Because as it stands, surely with the Rugby Europe Championship, if if that's the ceiling, winning the Rugby Europe Europe, Europe Championship, like how can they get up to to Italy? Okay, so I understand the question. So the question back to you then, Neil, is what is the most successful fran- franchise in the world? in terms of generating money for a sport that you're aware of? Would it be the Six Nations, would it? No. Oh. no, no. They don't even have franchise agreements. It's, uh, it's American football. Yeah. Okay? It's American football. So go. So, so maybe the Six Nations itself, rather than looking at Italy, rather than looking at Georgia and looking at Romania and South Africa, maybe the Six Nations needs to do a little bit of soul-searching itself and move away from the historical, okay, we're all in this together and we have our own club and, and become more professional itself and start uh, writing down what a franchise agreement is for a, a team to compete in the Six Nations. And then that would put a structure. Ireland already have it, England, Wales, Scotland, they already have it. And maybe there's a bit of tweaking they have to do, but then Italy don't have it and then they will have it. And let's see where that goes. And if South Africa come in, then they have to have it. And, and then so there's the maturing of the actual um, organization of the sport as opposed to the participants in the sport. Because if you just, if you give somebody 20 million and say, listen, do your best there and, 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 and be competitive in five matches, so they take the 20 million and say, thanks very much. You know, so maybe, maybe it's the sport itself as in the organization of the Six Nations needs needs to mature rather than looking at the countries, look at themselves. Birch, is that something you could see happening? Would it would okay. it take a, a lot of a lot of generosity from the, the wealthier nations? Oh look, I think it'd be I think I totally agree with Brad's that it would um, be a positive thing, but it won't happen. I, I can't see it happening to be honest because they don't see the compelling need to do it because let's be honest, Scotland are happy, Ireland are happy, Wales at WRU level are happy. The regions aren't, you know, England are, uh, and France are happy now. So it take it would take drastic measures for them to look at themselves like that. But I do agree with Michael. It, it would it would totally professionalize the whole thing. What about CVC? Are they happy? Because, they, <laughs> because now you're talking serious money here. Yeah. No. Yeah. Within, within a few years, if Italy continue to lose and lose and lose, you'd have to imagine CVC aren't going to be too happy, would you? Well, they'll only they, they'll only get um, upset. If they if their investment looks like it's not going to pay a dividend, and at the moment I would agree with you, Brad. I'd say they're wondering. I'd say they can't believe how unprofessional it is uh, um, at the yeah. high level, and you you know what it's like. Yeah. Um, and but again, at the end of the day, they'll probably look to just get out, get out with 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 obviously making a profit. But if they can't see a profit, they will start to kick up a fuss. And well, what's the what's the what's the problem with with putting franchise agreements in there? Like what what like, if if it works commercially? And the a support, uh, sorry, it's, it supports a sport in the best possible way financially. I mean, it's a good um, it's a good argument to put forward instead of looking at a single country and saying that they have to do X, Y, and Z. That everybody has to do it. You know, everybody has to have. And then you use 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 the expertise that CVC have, they use, because they they're they're a world organization. They they have their finger in every pie. And then you, you ask some of those, you get, you get a team from CVC and they go to, okay, Ireland, England, Wales, France, and Italy. Okay, guys, this is what you're going to do to maximize the, the return, your return to develop the game in your country. Rather than leaving it up to the individual country, it's too easy. And this would be a point that was made to uh, Pro 14 three years ago by Connor. And uh, I don't suspect anything has happened since. And so CVC probably is the opportunity now. I tell you, it'll be an interesting conversation when CVC walk into the boards of the RFU and the, the RFU and they tell them, right, lads, this is where we're going. I mean, the bottom line is CVC came in with the offer of cash at a time when rugby was hemorrhaging money. 
Uh, that money should have been, you know, the, the percentages that they've bought in the Gallagher Premiership and, and, and URC and everything. That should have been sort of earmarked, if you like, for further development down the road. But unfortunately, it's all been sucked in and keeping the game alive because of the fallout of the pandemic. Uh, CVC at the moment, they're on the brink of um, uh, agreeing uh, a deal with South Africa. So that's, you know, that'll be a game changer in terms of then you have CVC from their perspective. Of course, we'll have a vested interest in South Africa coming into the Six Nations. Um, so uh, as Bert said, look, these, these venture capitalists, they're in it for long-term gain. But the minute they see their investment coming under pressure, well, that creates a different argument. Um, so look, I mean, but that's where the game is at the moment. It's, it's teetering. Um, and as I say, the implications of South Africa leaving the rugby championship and the broadcast money and all that that they bring to the table down there. If that's gone in five years' time, um, and Australia and New Zealand will get fed up of playing each other and they won't be able to generate enough money to keep their games alive. So um, I, I think the professional game, the pandemic has, has highlighted for me just how brittle the professional game is. I mean, soccer had the resources and uh, the means to be able to survive uh, the issues of the last two years. Professional rugby is only 27 years old. So uh, from, from that point of view, uh, you're just seeing how delicate the professional game is. We might, we might move on the conversation now that we've, now that we've solved this crisis. Because there are yeah. a few games coming up this weekend. <laughs> um, notably, Ireland against Italy this Sunday afternoon at the Aviva Stadium. Um, team is going to be named Friday, so a day, a day or two later than, the, than we're normally used to. So normally on the podcast, we're kind of reacting to the to the team being announced, fellas. But obviously this time around, we can predict things. <clears throat> there are a few decisions to make. First of all, I'll start with I'll start with you, Birch. Who starts in the eleven jersey? James Lowe or Mac Hansen this week? I'd like to see Hanson play, and that's sorry. I'd like to see James Lowe play, and that's not a uh, any slight on Hanson. I think Hanson's had two decent games, um, but I, I just think Lowe may be needed um, against Scotland or England. And I think obviously he got 20, 25 minutes off the bench against um, against the Ospreys the weekend. I'd like to see him play. I thought our kicking game struggled against France. Um, I think there's a lot of pressure on Gibson Park or, or Joey Carberry if Lowe isn't in the team or a natural left footer. And uh, I'd like to see him get a game, see where he's at at international level. Uh, and on the other wing, I'd like to see Balotelloon play, to be honest. And that, again, I think Conway and Hanson have been really good, but we need to develop depth and we need to develop options. Michael, a lot of people kind of, every year it seems people kind of, as soon as the Italy game comes around, they kind of say this is the opportunity to, to change the team around, to, you know, make 10 changes, give three or four debuts. But it never really works out that way, does it? it, it sometimes it's just about kind of tinkering in a couple of selections. Yeah, well, I mean, if I mean, if 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 I was uh, in Farrell's uh, f- um, uh, shoes, I, I'd be I'd be looking more towards the English game, and the selection I would be tinkering with. If 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 I was looking at it like you, you look at the physicality of uh, of England. So somebody like Henshaw might might end up uh, in the centre in either twelve or thirteen uh, as as a possibility. Low, as Birch said there. The kicking game is going to be important against England to be able to get to to get um to, to get out of your your red zone. Uh, so he, they might they might take the view that they they'll prepare for the English match through the Engl- through the Italian game, um, and um, they certainly won't be looking any further than than um, obviously a good result against England and a very competitive match in in, in Twickenham. So I suspect most of the um, selections will be will be based on on what they feel is the right team for England uh, and how they want to play that match now your key one is going to be your number 10 to see which way you go there so if you go running game against England maybe you don't put in Henshaw or if you do put in Henshaw you put him in 12 um, uh, uh, and leave Ringrose in at 13 because he was obviously got a super try there against uh, Wales etc but um, against uh, you know a big French French side who, who put a lot of numbers in the defence line and, and basically stopped Ireland uh, coming around the corner and getting uh, kind of a momentum that they're they're used to and then 
purchase correct without um, uh, a secondary uh, kicking option to get out of uh, the 22. So all the all these things will be up for up for discussion, you know. So uh, I would have gone with low, and um, the question is how like Carberry and Ringrose probably go together for me, and then Sexton and Henshaw would go the other way together for me. You know what I mean? Don't. Donald, what changes would would you like to see, or what changes are you expecting to see? Uh, well, they're two different questions, aren't they? Really, that's, that, I that's, mean, what, that's why I separated them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the bottom line is, and this is where Italy had become an issue for the wrong reason. Uh, in 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 many championships, the number of points you put up against Italy can dictate who wins the championship because uh, so many championships in recent years have come down to points differential. We all remember the. Super Saturdays we had when it was a try one way or the other made the difference between winning and losing a championship. So uh, Andy Farrell, on the one hand, he wants to win a championship. There's no doubt about that. Now, I still think he can tweak his team and still be uh, competitive enough to um, to do a number on, on Italy. Uh, up front, I, and, and I suppose the one thing you've got to say for Andy Farrell is our injury profile is incredible. Uh, like Ronan Gallagher is out and we know that he's out for the rest of the championship but you know you look at the Italians already they have uh, they had a number of players unavailable to them coming into the championship and they've lost another three or four since so um, uh, I think up front is going to be in a you know a, a different challenge against England uh, I see for this weekend for example they have Courtney Laws is back in the picture Joe Launchbury is back Manu Tuolaghi is back so all of a sudden those three players make England a totally different animal. So if you use Brad's analogy where you're using the Italian game as your springboard for the next one, well, then for me, uh, Ian Henderson comes into the picture. You know what I mean? Um, now, Ty Byrne has been outstanding. So do you take him out of the second row, put him into the back row? Do you pick Henderson and, and leave James Ryan out? No, James Ryan, for me, in the last two games has recapture the form that he had prior to those concussions. Uh, but I think, you know, there are debates that um, Andy Farrell is going to have. You could well play Tyburn six, put Caelan Doris at eight and start Jack Conan on the bench. Um, but I do think we're going to have to look at ways of, of uh, you know, the, the French asked questions of us physically and I've no doubt England will do the same. So in terms of uh, beating Italy is one thing. Using this game as a mechanism to prepare for the England game is the next thing. So for me, uh, the likes of Henderson has to come into the into the debate. And does does Johnny Sexton come in for Joey Carberry this week, or is he is he being given an extra, not even an extra week, an extra two weeks to to just get himself right after the hamstring injury? Because we've another. Yeah, well, I felt I, I I felt after the look. You've got to. This is where the longer-term project comes into play for me. I mean, we all know Johnny Sexton, despite the fact that he's 36 years of age, he's head and shoulders against the next fellas uh, looking to come up uh, behind him. Uh, Andy Farrell has spread the net far and wide. We had the Byrne brothers, we had Billy Burns. Uh, uh, Jack Carty is back in the mix now. Uh, but Joey Carberry, I think, in difficult circumstances. Remember Joey Carberry, only 17 minutes of rugby played from October when he went in to start um, uh, in, in the last game against France. And you're talking about France and the Stade de France. This is as big a test as you're going to get. And I thought Carberry was outstanding. So from that point of view, with more the longer-term objective of the World Cup, I would start Carberry and I'd uh, look to bring Johnny Sexton on for the last 30 minutes because you're going to need Sexton and he needs game time before the England match. And I also think that last 30 minutes, you look at England, England actually struggled. They didn't score, I think, from four minutes into the second half against Italy until five minutes to go. France had a, a sort of a, a fallow period against Italy as well. I think Johnny Sexton coming off the bench with 30 minutes to go, that drives Ireland even more in the last quarter of the game. And it also gives Joey Carberry what would only be his second start in Six Nations rugby. So um, uh, I, like, in terms of that one selection, I would be clouded by what I want to achieve down the road. Further than England, I'd be looking towards the World Cup. So that would that would influence the decision for me. Is that the best of both worlds, Birch? Give Carberry the start and you can still give Johnny Sexton 20 minutes plus off the bench to keep him ticking over. 
Yeah, I think that's that I, I'd be totally in, in favor of that as well. Just uh, it's important for Joey to back it up. Uh, but also I do think it's important that Sexton, if he's fully fit, gets some game time because I think he will start against England. We've been I've been hoping to kind of touch on the other games, but I think we like we ended up getting so into that conversation around Italy. It's really only quick quick fire predictions, really, is probably all we have time for before we wrap it up here. So I suppose on all three games this weekend, Michael, I might start with you, Ireland, Italy. What do you what are you expecting? Are you, are we just more realistically looking at an Irish win bonus point even? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Comfortable. Then, Comfortable. Yeah. England Wales at Twickenham, and then that's also on Saturday, and then also on Saturday <laughs> then as well as Scotland France at Murrayfield. How do you very quickly? How do you see those going? Um, obviously, well, not obviously, but I would go England um, bonus point win for for England, and I'd go Scotland uh, against France. Scotland have a good record in recent years against France. Donald, what way do you see this weekend's games going? Yeah, I think, uh, well, look, Ireland will win. Uh, I think England will beat uh, Wales in, in, in Twickenham, especially with the infusion they're going to get from those fellas coming back. Uh, impressed by the way Wales bounced back against uh, Scotland. But uh, look, they were really poor against Ireland. Scotland-France is the game of the debate. For me, uh, France have lost twice. To Scotland in the last two years. Uh, I think there was points against Ireland and New Zealand where France showed a resilience that we haven't seen for them for a long time. So uh, I'm going to go for France to get the first. Uh, if you park Italy, it would be the first away win in the Six Nations in a game that you know the Italians aren't involved in. So I'm going to go for France marginally away. And finally to you, Birch, I see actually even just this morning a uh been reported in the UK. Lewis Rees Amit's been dropped by by Wales. They haven't named their team, but it's been reported he's been sent back to Gloucester this weekend. Yeah, strange call. Like I know he didn't have the the finest game ever against Scotland, but um, no, that's that's a big call. I think I think if if, if Wales are to beat England, they they probably need a couple of their their you know most uh, exciting players to have huge games and I think that would be England would be happy he's not playing uh, I, I agree with Donald I think um, England will win that I, I also I think Brad's could be right they could get a bonus point I think England um, will, will do a job on, on Wales and I, I think France will, will just will struggle against Scotland but just might be good enough to, to get through So full house for Ireland full house for England and yeah. we've got two going for France and I think it was, was it you, Donald, that said Scotland to beat France? No, or was it, was no. It, was it I, I went for Scotland and I went for CBC. <laughs> CB, <laughs> CBC, is it? No, no, Donald, their, their day is gone now. PBC. <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what a way to wrap it up. What a way to wrap it up with, uh, with CBC. But um, no, just a reminder, England-Wales, that is the, the live game this Saturday on RT2. Live radio commentary on RT Radio 1 on Sunday afternoon for Ireland against Italy at the Aviva Stadium as well. And we'll have plenty of reaction, I'm sure, with the lads next week on Against the Head and the Rugby Podcast. We'll be back next Wednesday as well. But uh, Michael Bradley, thanks a million for joining us this afternoon. Donal and Birch, thanks as usual. And we'll speak to you next week. The RTE Rugby Podcast, sponsored by Canterbury. See the new Irish men and women's rugby jerseys at canterbury.com.